Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are diving into this series, and the series is called In His Image, God-Centered Sexuality. And you may remember, back in April of last year, we started a series called In His Image and, and had this, this puzzle, right? You guys remember the thing I did with this puzzle? Some of you still haven't forgiven me. I'm not dumping the puzzle out this time. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to leave it in the box I, I can see your heart rates rising. It's a weird thing that happens with puzzle people and you talk about dumping out a puzzle. Uh, in, that, in that series, though, we were talking about worldview and how our worldview is like a puzzle. And this is a great uh, a picture uh, that came from a book, this idea that our worldview is a puzzle. It's full of so many pieces. And if we are going to understand the world as Scripture outlines for us and as followers of Jesus, we, we need to, to allow the Lord to assemble this puzzle. We, we, our aim, our goal is, is to understand how all these pieces fit together. And in that series, we kind of looked at just how to put the corners in place. And we looked at what it meant to be human. It was an exploration of what it meant to be human. And, and, and in that, we unpacked this idea that we are made in his image, in God's image, our creator's image. Uh, and, and so that was the series. Then, uh, this time, we're not, we're not looking at the corner pieces. In fact, we're just going to look at, at this piece right here, and, and just one piece, an important piece of the puzzle, and that is our sexuality. Now, we looked at what it means to be human, and that involves a lot of things. And we're looking on this series, just focusing in one particular area, and that is, is this realm of sexuality. And so I, I just wanted to remind us where we've been. This current series, we told you we were going to branch off of, of that last series. We were looking at worldview. We're going to focus in this realm of sexuality. And this has become one of the most polarizing issues in our culture, in our time today. I don't think I really need to unpack that for us. 
You've experienced this. We've experienced this. Different views and understanding of, of, of what sexuality is have divided our school board. They've divided our classrooms. They've divided some of our families. They've certainly divided churches. There are denominations that are, that are, that are falling apart and congregations that are splitting over these questions and these issues. This is a big one. And if your heart rate wasn't going up when I threatened to dump out the puzzle, it probably is now. <laughs> so you're like, what is he going to say? <laughs> this topic is vital. We need to know and understand the freedom and joy that comes from God's design, which is unpacked in Scripture. And our aim in this series is to focus on what it means to have a sexuality that is not centered on self, it's not centered on me, it's not centered on popular belief or opinion, but is truly centered on our maker, centered on God. And so we're going we're gonna to dive in in this series, and um, we want to be very, very upfront, and so hopefully you got the, the emails from our children's ministry and youth ministry leaders here, and, and even our, our church-wide email that just said, hey, heads up, if you're a parent, we're talking about this issue. We are going to keep it PG, um, but we just want everybody to be prepared that there may be questions that, uh, that we need to answer that come from this, and so... We wanted to take a minute here at the start of, of each week and, and look at where we're headed with what we're covering with this because certainly we, we won't cover this whole entire realm. This is, a big, this is a big topic. And we also want to make sure that we review where we've been in this series. So uh, to start off today, I, I want to look at an overview of what we're planning in this five-week series. Today we are looking at rejecting two foundational lies. And these lies get to the heart of the gospel itself, and they also get to the heart of, of how a lot of us understand and perceive our own personal identities, what it means to belong to Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at these two lies and, and rejecting them because they, uh, they have a way of shaping uh, how we think, even, even if we'd like to, to believe that they haven't shaped us. So we're, we're going to kind of lay a foundation today and, and, and just sort of, sort of set, set some, some, some boundaries of what this conversation is going to look like as we go through the upcoming four weeks. And so next week we'll be unpacking what God's design is for marriage. The following week we'll be looking at God's great purpose for marriage. And then week four, we'll be exploring God's great purpose for singleness and then wrapping up this series, week five, uh, looking at this question, how does Jesus respond to sexual sin? This is where we're headed. And I just want to be very clear from the beginning and say we're not going to answer every question that you have about this. We couldn't do that in just five weeks. We're not going to look at every individual situation that you may be facing, uh, but we, we really want to, to provide space and opportunity for that. And so uh, there is a DTM that is going to be kind of exploring some similar things uh, that, that's happening in the courtyard room. And it's, it's been going, and this is a, just a shameless plug. If you want to go join, join them in that DTM in the courtyard room at, at 11 o'clock, those are discipleship training modules. And, and so they're going to be unpacking that a little bit. Uh, 
Uh, but we also will have opportunity to connect with, with shepherds in the church. We'll have elders, and, and right after the service, we'll be down here if you want prayer. But then if you need a, a more extended conversation or if this brings up some issues or questions or conversations or need for pastoral care, grab a cup of coffee. We'll, we're going to, some of us, be in the fireside room right across the foyer behind the coffee bar for an opportunity to connect and talk over a cup of coffee. This series, who is this series for? This series is for those who have been here for a long time and are trying to figure out how to navigate this topic in our current day and age. This series is for those listening from a distance who are also trying to figure out how to navigate this topic. This series is for those who love people who struggle greatly with these these issues surrounding and regarding sexuality. This series is also for those who struggle mightily with sexuality, either openly or secretly. This series is for you. And I know that in this room right now, we have, I've just described like a a spectrum of people that are present here with us in the room. And as we engage in this series, just want to recognize that, um, that, that God has a plan and he has good in store for all of us regardless of how you're approaching this topic today. It's no secret that, to God that you are here today. He's known you are going to be here, whether you're here in person or whether you're listening on another day on the podcast or tuning in with our live stream. It's no secret to him that you are going to hear this message. And he's been, he's been crafting his word for the purpose of transforming you and giving you a kind of peace and hope and security and love that you could never imagine as we unpack these issues and his design for a God-centered sexuality. It's no accident that you're here. God will transform you, and it's good. Uh, We also recognize that that within this broad audience that I've just described, we, we do have everybody here in the room. And I also know that as a, a follower of Jesus, Today, in this day and age, it, it, it is disappointing and frustrating how our voices have been suppressed in, in the town square and in the workplace and in schools and places. And so, boy, it, it, it might feel good to hear something proclaimed, a truth that, that you know is true that comes from Scripture proclaimed out loud. And um, I, I just want to invite us that, that during this series, as we, as we unpack God's Word, would you join in God's great purposes for bringing transformation to all of us by when you hear something that resonates deeply with you, resist the temptation to like stand up and shout amen. And you're like, Wes, this is a Baptist church. Like we don't do that here. Like (laughs) you may be tempted to do that. I just want to invite you like whisper a prayer for those for whom the truth of uh, the good truth of the word of God might be difficult to hear. Engage together in the transformative work that God is doing. It's bigger than us, and it's bigger, bigger than our own experience. God is doing a great thing. And so, um, so again, I want to invite you, if, as we get, dig into this, um, know and trust that your maker has good for you in it. And with that, I'd like, I'd like to pray. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give this time to you. We trust you that your design is good. We trust that you will show us in your word your character, 
that we will see your faithfulness and your goodness displayed in this good design. And God, I pray, I pray today that any hindrance that may be in our hearts, any hindrances that may be in the things that, that we have believed on these issues that keep us from the good of your word and the, the good love of Jesus, Lord, I pray, I pray today that you would just overwhelm us with your love and goodness and grace. I trust that the, the, the beauty of your plan would captivate our hearts. So, Lord, I, I lift us up to you today, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would illuminate your word, and that you would transform us and make us new and make us yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we explore these topics that you see over the next four weeks, uh, there's, there's kind of a series big idea that we will see emerge. We will see this thread throughout God's work within the realm of sexuality. And that is this, um, as we explore these topics, this truth that emerges is simply that God-centered sexuality, it draws us into greater dependence on Jesus. We've seen that aim, that goal in the work that God is doing in our lives in every realm, and we're going to see that especially as we unpack what Scripture says about sexuality, and that if we embrace a God-centered sexuality, it will draw us into greater dependence on Jesus, and depending on Jesus more and more is central to what it means to be a disciple of his. That's the heart of faith. That's the definition of faith is depending on Jesus. Here at LifePoint, the, the heart of our mission statement, our, this is our restatement, as Zach explained last week of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, is this, that we, we simply exist to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy, and here's the heart, of a life that is more and more dependent on Jesus. This is what we're called to be about. And as we engage this topic of sexuality, we will see God's aim for us in his design for this realm of our lives is to draw us into deeper dependence on him. And to that, we, we want to equip you. And so I'd like to invite the ushers to, would you please hand out, we've got a little bookmark for you to slide into your Bible or wherever is handy. Take this, um, this idea of depending more and more in Jesus and that that, that, that is what's going to happen as we unpack this topic, that a God-centered sexuality draws us into greater dependence on Jesus, uh, we're going to see at every turn that we do need his help. We need to depend on him in this. And so uh, one of the tools that we want to equip you with, this is, this is right in step with our, our vision that was launched last week and, and this idea that Zach put before us that we need to take new steps with Jesus this year and we want to count those steps. We want to recognize them. Uh, we want to equip you with a scripture that will help you in the moments you need to rely on Jesus most. And so uh, this is a scripture memory card. You have here uh, the big idea for this series living with God-centered sexuality draws us into deeper dependence on Jesus. And then here's a verse from Hebrews chapter 4 that unpacks what it practically looks like to depend on Jesus when, when you need help, when you're going through temptation, when you are struggling to align your life with the design that God has. And so here's, here's the invitation and the challenge for us. We would love to see our church be equipped with this scripture, not on this card, but buried in your heart. 
We want to invite you to memorize this verse together throughout this series so that as we, as we work through what it means to, to have a God-centered sexuality, when, when it gets difficult, when it is challenging, you have a place to turn. You've hidden God's word in your heart. And so the way this works, the, the text of the verse is written out on one side. And then you flip this over, and on the other side, you see the first letter of every word in that passage. And so I want to invite you to take this card and instead of scrolling on your phone when you have like an extra 47 seconds, like, let, let, like, like say no to Google for a minute and pull this out, read through the verse, read through it out loud, read through it silently, flip the card over and see if you can read through it with just the cue of that first letter of every word. Do this throughout the next five weeks and we can hide the word of God in our hearts as we, as we focus on, on this, this reality that a God-centered sexuality will draw us into greater dependence on Jesus. Jesus. The things that it will take, the sacrifices that we all will be invited to make, and the steps that we need to take to have a, a sexuality that is centered on God will require the help of Jesus. And so I want to invite you, take this and, and hide it in your heart. So with that, um, let's look at today. We are, as I said, we are looking at these two foundational lies. We are rejecting two foundational lies that we see uh, that, that kind of set the stage for how we are going to approach this topic. And the very first lie that we're looking at is a prevalent lie out there, uh, and it's simply this, that love is agreement. This is the lie, that love is agreement. And it, it, at the heart of this is the idea that, that you cannot love somebody if you disagree with their choices or their worldview or their perspective on something. You know, restated, this lie says this, that it's impossible to hold someone in the greatest kind of love with whom you disagree with on the most important issues. Have you felt the reality of our culture embracing this lie? that love is the same as agreement, the two are interchangeable, and that you could not possibly love somebody and also disagree with something that matters greatly. You know, this lie, this, <laughs> this lie gets at the heart of the gospel. But here's the thing, even if we easily, as, as followers of Jesus, see this and say, oh, that can't be true. Yeah, that's a thing that's out there. It can't possibly be in here. Even if we disagree with this lie in theory, the reality is our, our lives, our actions, our words, our attitudes, even our secret thoughts and emotions demonstrate that on some level we've probably embraced this as true. Do you love the people with whom you disagree with most at work? at school, even in your family? If you ask them, would they say that you love them? <laughs> and just to like, look around a little bit on a Sunday morning, you know, Sunday mornings remain, sociologists tell us, the most segregated hour of the week in America. If, if, if love, if this is a lie, that love equals agreement, and it just simply is not true that, that, that you have to, to, to agree with somebody in order to love them well, then why aren't our churches filled with 
a wide variety of opinions? Why do our churches tend to be filled with people that are just like us? I think we have this, this fallenness in us that gravitates towards people that are like us, and it's just easier than working through disagreement. But, but what, is, what does the Scripture say about this, the nature of love? Is love and agreement, are these two things the same? Are they one and the same? Turn with me to that Romans passage, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. What does Scripture say about the nature of love? Romans 5, 8 to 11, we see here, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes on, (laughs) Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we also be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Look at this verse. The love that God gives to us is not based on agreeing with him on the most important things, is it? It's not based on our agreement with him about the most important issues and matters. In fact, it was given to us, it was extended to us in the midst of the greatest conflict in the, anywhere in the universe, in the midst of us having rejected him. While we were still sinners, while we were still saying, God, I'm setting aside your, your plan for me, your design for my life. I'm going to be self-sufficient. I'm going to reject you. While we were still in that place, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Jesus demonstrates the very highest kind of love, which is self-sacrifice. While we were still sinners, enemies of God, having rejected him as our creator. You know, the timing of Jesus' love for us, when he gave us that gift, when he made that sacrifice, it is crucial to the heart of the gospel. If we're going to understand the goodness of the good news of Jesus, he didn't wait until we got all of our theology correct. He didn't wait until, until we, we, were, we were able to live a perfect life. No, no, no. It was while we were mired in our own sin, in the greatest kind of disagreement between a a, a creature and his creator, it was then that Christ died for us. And we see that reiterated in this passage three different times. You know, it's interesting. This this kind of love, it it is so far from this counterfeit worldly idea that love and agreement have to go together. It is counterfeit to that. We see the reality here, the truth, is that love is most glorious when it is given in the midst of the greatest kind of conflict. That's the truth that we see in Scripture. The truth that we see if we look to God's Word to understand the very nature of love, it is most glorious when it's given in the midst of the greatest conflict. No matter how, when, or where we have rebelled against God, Jesus demonstrated the very greatest kind of love, the most glorious kind of love for us. Even knowing the depth of our worst sinfulness, he went to the cross for us and gave himself as a sacrifice for us. And then he taught us to do the same. 
You know, we see Jesus teach about what it means to, to, to love our perceived enemies. He taught on this. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. He, he taught us to love our enemies. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. I tell you the truth, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And look at his reason for this. He grounds this command to us to extend love, even in the midst of conflict, even, even to the people that we perceive as our enemies. He grounds his reasoning for this in something that theologians call the common grace of God. Jesus says, for, for he, our Father, our Heavenly Father, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. We see this reflected in the character of Jesus going to the cross and in the character of our Creator, our Heavenly Father God, to love even in the midst of disagreement, even in the midst of conflict. Jesus was teaching here about our perceived enemies. Paul helps us to see with even greater clarity, pull back the curtain even more to show us why, why would God tell us in Jesus to, to love our enemies? And we see this in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where, where, where Paul unpacks, he says, our, our battle is not against people. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but we're wrestling against something greater against the authorities, against the cosmic powers in this present darkness, against the, 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 the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's saying, hey, love your enemies, but remember that the true enemy is, is, is not our flesh and blood, the people that disagree with us. The true enemy is, is, is in these spiritual realms. You know, you know we, can, we can even look at the people that we disagree with that this issue, this topic has brought polarization to within our broader community and our neighborhoods and our schools and workplaces. We can see these people not even as our enemies but simply as people who have, who have been taken captive by, by an evil force. There is an opportunity here for us to extend great love in the midst of this spiritual battle. So how do we, how do we live with this kind of love for our perceived enemies? Well, we can insist on loving people gloriously, even those that we disagree with. I want to invite you to this, to carry both the character of Christ in loving sacrifice and the character of God by extending a common grace of love and, and, and sacrifice and hospitality to people that you may disagree with greatly. You know, there is uh, an author, Rosaria Butterfield, who speaks to this in a helpful way and, and heard her unpack on a podcast um, the difference between accepting somebody who stands before you that you disagree with on something and, and affirming them. And, and, and so she, she talks about what it looks like to extend this kind of common grace and love to somebody who you disagree with on a great issue and how she answers questions that, that people give. And, and, and her, her testimony is, is incredible. I encourage you, if you're not familiar with her, uh, spend some time getting to know her. Um, but but she, she describes it this way. She says, you know, if, if you, just to get personal within the family, if you were planning Thanksgiving, and, and one of your children was coming, wanted to come to this meal and wanted to bring their partner. 
and, and, and they, they were living a homosexual lifestyle. She, she says, even if you disagree with their lifestyle, she would encourage, extend a common grace of love and care by setting a place at the table. You may not provide your guest room for them, but you can set a place at the table to extend love even in the midst of disagreement with them. That is just simply one example. But I want to invite us to insist on loving people gloriously in a glorious way that, that reflects Jesus, whom we, we may disagree with greatly. And we're going to look, like I said, in week five on what it, what it means for us as believers to respond to sexual sin and follow the, the path of Jesus in that um, in a few weeks here. Um, but right now, I want to invite us to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth with a loving posture and tone and attitude. And, and don't be afraid to refute this lie that love has to equal agreement by loving greatly, even as we disagree with, with people on these issues. Now, this will take relying on Jesus. <laughs> it will take a wisdom that is greater than what we have. It'll take a love and a care that is greater than we have. And so I want to invite you, in those moments, turn to the Word. That's what this is for. Rely on Jesus in the midst of this. If we cannot love people mightily with whom we disagree with greatly, it will be nearly impossible for us to address and refute the second foundational lie that we see within our world because, because it gets to the heart of a person's deepest perception of their core identity. And so this is the second lie, and it is simply that identity equals sexuality. Identity is sexuality, that these two things are synonymous. Now, sexuality is certainly an important part of our identity as people. But there's this idea that, that conflates these two things that says who you are sexually is what defines your reality, your identity. We simply don't see this in Scripture. This, this, this may be more of a subtle assumption than an outright lie in many cases, but the prevailing ideology assumes that a person's sexuality is the most central, important, key element of their identity. But what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say about this? Flip over to page one of your Bible to that Genesis passage. Genesis 1, 26. We focus on just 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. A quick reading of this first account of God's creation of people in Genesis chapter 1 shows there is indeed a very close connection between sexuality and identity. But if we take a closer look, look at, at this, at verse 26, the man and the woman, they're the only creatures in all of creation that are made in the image of God. And bearing God's image is the first thing that God says about humankind. Look, he says, then God said, let us make man in our image. The very first thing that he talks about when he talks about the creation of humans is that we are made in his image. And then this concept of bearing God's image is repeated. It's repeated four times in two verses. 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We see that this concept of bearing God's image is repeated over and over. This is the core trait. This is the central element of human identity that distinguishes people from the rest of creation. And it's beautiful. It's glorious. In verse 27, the very first mention of sexuality in creation is talking about the mankind being made male and female. And this, this, is, this flows from mankind bearing the image of God. It's, it's, it's secondary to this, this image bearing of God. We see this that it's in, 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 in the, the creation narrative. We're going to have a God-centered sexuality. We see the most central element of our identity is not our sexuality. In fact, our sexuality is secondary to the reality and the truth that God's image is the center of human identity. It's the center of human identity. Therefore, identity is not the same as sexuality. Rather, our identity is rooted in the image of God and it is, it is it, from that, that that God has created our sexuality. Our creator is the center. Everything else that we try to make the heart of our identity, whether it's your career or your wealth or achievements or skills or abilities, uh, how you are networked with people, the people that you know, everything else that we try to put in the center of our lives, it it will leave us high and dry. It will leave us missing the heart of God. Our current cultural moment wants to, wants to elevate sexuality and put that on the pedestal right at the center, but the reality is God has designed us with his image, his likeness at the very center of our being, which is good news because God's work and plan for you and in you is greater than your sexuality. It's greater than your fantastic marriage. I say that not ironically. Some of you have fantastic marriages. It's greater than that. God's purpose and plan and work in your life is greater than your miserable, lonely singleness. It's greater than the mess that you've made of your life through unfaithfulness or adultery or pornography or divorce. It's greater than the seemingly insatiable sexual desire that seems to consume every waking thought that you may have. 14-year-old boys, I see you. It's greater than the regret that you carry about past relationships. It's it's greater than the hopelessness you feel of being stuck in a miserable marriage or a regretful decision that that you made to try to to place your sexuality at the heart of your identity. It's, It's greater than the secret attractions that you hold that you're afraid to talk about in church because you don't want to be rejected and ostracized. God's plan and design and intention for your life is greater than all of this. That's the beauty and the joy and the truth of, 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 of embracing a God-centered sexuality. It's his image that's at the center of our identity. And our identity, who we are as people, our lives cannot bear the weight of anything except for God himself being right at the center. God's work and plan for you, it's greater than your sexuality. He is inviting us today to embrace a sexuality that's centered on him. It's centered on him. 
It's not centered on our sexuality. It's not centered on anything else. He's inviting us to reject a self-centered sexuality or, or, or a self-centered identity and instead to walk with a God-centered identity that is established in his image. Now, we're going to unpack more and more what that looks like in the coming weeks. But today, uh, we, we wanted to, to begin by looking at these two foundational truths that refute some of these common lies that are out there, that if we're not careful, if we let these lies into our thinking, in, into the way that we approach this issue, we can miss the heart of the gospel. Because the gospel is undone if you have to agree with somebody to love them. <laughs> we'll miss the heart of the gospel and we'll miss the opportunity to engage with people on their deepest level of their self-perceived identity. But the, the joy and the truth is that God's image is at the center of our identity. And love is most glorious when it's given and extended in the midst of greatest conflict. This cultural moment that we live in, that you're sending your kids to school in, that you are engaging in every day at work where you have impossible decisions to make as, as a worldview that is, is counter to the word of God is expected from you. You know, this, this is a, a moment of, of great conflict on the broad scale and I want to invite us as followers of Jesus today to allow God to be the center of our thinking the center of our response the very center of our sexuality that concludes LifePoint Church's podcast for more information about our church visit sharethelife.org